Welcome back to another episode of the Yips Podcast. I'm Jack Craig. This is a biographical sports history podcast. Every week, I will exhaustively research and discuss in detail some of the most interesting individuals in sports history with my good friend, Davin Rozovsky. If you're interested in learning more about a certain fascinating athlete and hearing it discussed on this podcast, you can email us at theyipspodcast at gmail.com, comment on the Yips Podcast Facebook page, or tweet us at the Yips Podcast. On the Yips Podcast, you may hear offensive language and themes that may not be suitable for children. If you are easily offended by quotes from athletes of the past that may be politically incorrect by today's standards, this podcast may not be for you. There are hundreds of other great podcasts out there that you can listen to, so please don't waste your time being upset at this one. All right, Devin, let's get started. All right, so welcome back. To another week of the Yips podcast. Last week was a little change of pace. Yeah, back with a full episode back this with, time, as opposed right. to the, the quick Yip episode. That's right. And uh, no interview this week. Yeah. But hopefully, but we'll that guy was great. We Mac enjoyed guy. having him, and uh, he's actually been up on a couple of like barstool posts and ESPN posts in the last couple weeks. So it's been funny to see that after us doing the interview. So we would be guy, guy, guys, right? Their, their cornhole team is yeah. guy and guy. Yeah, so we're guy, we're guy guys. Yeah, we're guy guy, we're guy guy guys. Guy guy guys. Yeah. Okay. So we'll get things started off. Uh, yip of the week. Yeah, I'll get started. Okay. This yip of the week goes out to uh, Tristan Thompson. All right. Who recently cheated on Chloe uh, Kardashian? Okay. Who was power, pregnant? Power couple. Who was pregnant and got this woman that he cheated on her with pregnant as well. Oh, jeez. And his ex girlfriend prior to Chloe Kardashian, he also got pregnant. Prior to getting with Chloe, or maybe there was some overlap there. Who knows? The funny thing I find about this is that in 2016, Alabama won the college football national championship. Yeah. Villanova won the basketball championship. Right. Tristan Thompson cheated on his girlfriend. Okay. Or fiance or whatever. And the Cavs won the championship. Oh, so, so we got three out of four right now. So, I mean, think I, think, I, think, I think safe money is on the Cavs this year. Just okay. saying. Yeah, I mean... You would think uh, practice some safer sex or something. Yeah, you Somebody would think like so. That. But I guess you just don't learn. Uh, my yip of the week comes from the world of football. It's the off season. A little off season football news. Uh, Green Bay Packers wide receiver Trevor Davis was at the LAX airport. <laughs> he was checking in for his flight on Hawaiian Airlines at the counter, and the ticket agent, as they're required to do, asked Trevor and his female companion if they had any unapproved items in their bags. You know, aerosols, knives, bombs, etc. And he turned to his companion and said, quote, yeah, did you pack the explosives? (laughs) He was arrested almost immediately on a misdemeanor criminal threat charge. He was taken to jail where he was booked within an hour and held on a $15,000 bond. His companion was not arrested. So I would argue that that yip should go to the police because that is ridiculous. No, I, he made a I joke know, of a bomb but it's like I can't, airport. Yeah, but I can't say hello to you on an airplane. What? Hi, Jack. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without getting arrested. Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. Is I understand, but like getting legitimately arrested for that is like a little ridiculous. He was obviously making a sarcastic comment. He's an idiot for doing it. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Don't make a bomb joke at an right. airport. You don't I, do that's it. That's the moral of the you story. You don't do it. Agreed. You asked the guy a question and he obviously gave you a sarcastic answer. Just kind of being a dick, but like, come on. I, you don't need to arrest the guy. I get your point of where's like, the line. Just be where's like, maybe just be like, get the fuck out of here. You're not catching this plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But where's the line, right? What if 
you had some bad food and you have explosive uh, bowels. Right. You know, can you say, can you say that? I got so a anyways. bomb in my pants. <laughs> so anyways, <laughs> Trevor Davis, what an idiot. Idiot. Yeah, what? Idiot, I agree. But nonetheless, I will stick to my uh, point that the arresting and charging with the misdemeanor is an overreaction. Well, yeah. Is it illegal to be stupid? Sometimes. Sometimes. (laughs) It is for him. It's it's not illegal. It's frowned upon, like beating off on an airplane. Taking that out. (laughs) It's from uh, The Hangover. Oh, that's right. Yeah, then he goes... Pretty sure that's illegal. Yeah, maybe since 9-11. Thanks a lot, Bin Laden. <laughs> it's a great line. Well, it's been two weeks since we had a yip of the week. We're, we're back in back in action. Full force. William Lewis Vec was born on January 20th, 1876. Ooh, an oldie. Near Evansville, Indiana. He was the son of Dutch parents who had shortened their name from Vandervek after arriving in the U.S. He dropped out of school and became a telegraph messenger at only 10 years old due to the death of his father. Had to bring in the money. In his free time, he played baseball like most other Midwestern boys at the time. By the age of 14, he became a printer's apprentice and then a press room helper at the Boonville Standard Paper, where he worked for six years. Although not formally educated, he read and wrote constantly. He eventually moved to Louisville, Kentucky to take a job as a police reporter. However, he returned home and married his childhood sweetheart, Grace DeForest, on October 17th, 1900. (laughs) That's a funny name. Grace's father was the only doctor and one of the largest landowners in Evansville, and he was outraged at his daughter's choice of partner. There's a joke in there somewhere with her name, Grace DeForest. Grace DeForest. Like, you know, you Grace DeForest with your presence or something. I don't have one. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm I'm thinking, but there's a joke in there somewhere. Yeah. I know it. In 1902, they moved to Chicago, and Vec took a job with the Chicago Interocean, which was a newspaper, where he covered the hotel beat. Oh, yeah. What do they got for brunch? You know, what time does the bar open? What time's happy hour? That good stuff. What time's check in, check out? So the the hotel beat. It's basically a section of the paper where it outlines some of the most famous people that were in and out of local hotels. So it's kind of like a TMZ okay. sort of section of the paper. So he then moved his column over to the Chicago Chronicle, where editor Ed Smith discovered Vec's love for baseball. When the Chronicle collapsed in 1907, Vec and Smith went to work at the Chicago Evening America, where Vec began working as a reporter with a column covering the Cubs and White Sox for the next dozen years. Is that just another, uh, another publication? Yeah, another newspaper. Grace and William had their first son, Maurice Forrest Vec. So, right, her last, her maiden last name was DeForest. They Mo made, Forrest. They made Mo Forrest. She when you from, plant, when you plant Mo trees, you got Mo Forrest. <laughs> she went from DeForest to having Mo Forrest. <laughs> so they had him in 1902. At the age of seven, Maurice and his good friend Preston Lavin had always played a game similar to cops and robbers with wooden handguns. However, on the day of his death, they found Mr. Lavin's loaded pistol, which he had taken out the night before when he thought. He heard a burglar breaking in and left it out. Ugh. Preston Ugh. accidentally shot Maurice just under the eye. Brutal. So they, they lose their first son. Grace never really recovered from the tragedy, and William threw himself into the work that he was doing in order to deal with his heartache. He quickly became one of the top sports writers in Chicago, where he was writing under the pseudonym Bill Bailey. 
After gaining some notoriety, William wanted to be able to write under his real name, but his editors wouldn't let him, fearing that people would think Bill Bailey had been replaced by somebody else. Right, so which he, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After Moe's death, Grace did not really want to have any more children, but William put the pressure on and eventually prevailed. On April 27, 1911, Grace gave birth to a baby girl named Margaret Ann Veck. She was followed by her brother less than three years later, who was born on February 9th, 1914, and named William Louis Veck Jr. And this story is about him. Okay. So that's kind of bad. Is it your friend? No. Will Lewis? No. His name's Bill Veck. <laughs> I know, I'm just gonna. <laughs> His father quickly mentioned young Bill Veck in a column blasting the Chicago Cubs offense, writing, quote, My new son can throw his bottle further than the team can hit. In 1918, Mr. Veck wrote a series of pointed columns about how poorly the Cubs were managed both financially and on the field. So since there's two people with the same name, the dad is going to be Mr. Veck. The son's going to be Bill Jr. Okay. The White Sox had been the dominant force in Chicago baseball during this period, but the Cubs had a bright spot when they won the National League pennant in 1918 in a season that was shortened by World War I. The Cubs were slightly favored going into the 1918 World Series after an 84-45 and record during the season. Both teams had excellent pitching staffs, and their opponent, the Boston Red Sox, the Boston Red Sox had a tremendous pitcher-outfielder named Herman Ruth, who won 13 games while batting 300 with a league-leading 11 home runs. So, slight tangent here. Yeah. Have you seen Otani yeah, on the, the, Angels? the Angels? He's absurd. It's it's like the first guys like Babe Ruth. That, right. Uh, That's what made me think of it. Is, pitching, you yeah. know, the pitching and the hitting. You know, he's going to fall off a little bit because yeah. he's batting like 400. And right. Small sample. Has size. like a ton of RBIs and a bunch of home runs and is 2-0 and with like a ERA under 3. Even if he falls off, let's say he bats like 270 and goes like 18-6 and six yeah. or 18-8. and eight, It's hard to keep him out of the conversation of MVP, isn't oh, it? Oh, for sure. Even though individually neither of those numbers are MVP numbers because right. he's doing both of them. Yeah. That's insane. I was I was just thinking about that today. Yeah, that, so it's I got funny a, that you brought up Babe Ruth. I got a Babe Ruth stat for you in a sec, okay. too. So in this World Series, he batted like sixth, and he's the first pitcher. He was the first pitcher for like years to not bat ninth. Oh, like okay. There's never been another pitcher in the World Series to not bat ninth. Ever? Still to this I, day? I don't think oh. so. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Was he pitching on that day? Yeah. Okay. So the Cubs were so confident that manager Fred Mitchell said, quote, We will win for sure. I think the Cubs form the better, stronger ball club. The pitchers are in great form. The men have been hitting are chock full of confidence, and I don't see a chance for them to lose. We'll be victorious in the end. It's good confidence, but it didn't work out well for them. The Sox won game one in Chicago. 1-0 1-0 to zero as Ruth earned the shutout pitching. In Game 2, the Cubs scored 3 in the second inning and hung on to win 3-1. to one. Due to wartime restrictions on travel, they played Game 3 in Chicago, where Boston prevailed 2-1, to one, with a Cubs player tagged out in a rundown between 3rd and home in the bottom of the ninth. Oh, that's what an exciting way, end to What a game. way to lose a World Series game. <laughs> the Cubs lost Game 4 in Boston after pitcher Phil Douglas threw a passed ball followed by an errant pitch on a bunt attempt that allowed the winning run to score for Boston. So two games in a row with Hmm. crazy endings. Hmm. Earlier in the game, George Tyler had shaken off directions to walk Babe Ruth, which had resulted in Ruth batting in two runs in the fourth. And they won that game two to one. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. They won game four three to two. The Cubs had like the goat curse, right? Yeah. Yeah. The goat curse. So this was, I think, during it still, wasn't it? Or was that, what did that start after? Oh, it wasn't until 1945 that the Billy Goat curse happened. So when was their most previous World Series prior to the one that happened, what, two years ago? 1908. 
Okay, so but it was curse, before this one, well, but, but the, the curse, curse didn't exist. The curse yet. didn't exist. At and, this point, it was just, you know, they hadn't won for a while. Yeah, and and the curse for the Red Sox of trading Babe Ruth it was wasn't like in a the thing. 20s. Well, yeah, but it was 1920, but it wasn't a thing. Nobody right. mentioned that until 1980. Oh, okay. That it was like the curse of the Bambi. Yeah. It was a Dan Shaughnessy article that spurred that. So they lost in game four, blowing it. After game four, the Cubs and Red Sox threatened to strike unless the winners were each guaranteed $2,500 and the losers $1,000. They finally backed down, though, when baseball executives didn't cave. Hmm. So, right, you're playing extra games at the end of the season. And I don't know if this is the case now, but back then, you're playing more and you get no extra money. Right? I'm almost certain you get paid more. I know in, like, football you yeah. do. So yeah. I assume that every sport's like that because there's no way these unions would allow that to happen. Right. So the Cubs then won game five, three to zero at Fenway. Then in game six, Boston won two to one in a game which included the Cubs getting picked off twice and a two-run error in the third inning by Cubs player Max Flack. So, right, three of those games, they just completely blew. Right. Right? So the Cubs lose the 1918 World Series in six games to Boston, which started the Boston Red Sox drought from 1918 to 2004, which became known as the Curse of the Bambino, after the Red Sox sold Ruth to the Yankees in 1920. Information gathered by historians suggests that gamblers may have gotten to the 1918 Cubs. Sounds like it. As it did with the 1919 Chicago White Sox. The next year, former Cubs pitcher Eddie Seacote would be one of the members of the White Sox who intentionally threw the 1919 World Series to the Cincinnati Reds in exchange for money from gambling boss Arnold Rothstein. He and seven other players were banned from baseball for what is now called the Black Sox scandal. Yep. One of Vex's colleagues, Hugh Fullerton was eventually the one that blew the whistle on the Black Sox scandal and had suggested something shady was going on with the 1918 Cubs. I mean, it's this common thread there. Same city. Same city, same guy on both teams. Fuller's account of the 1918 World Series point out repeated bizarre base running tactics and defensive flubs by the Cubs. So Flubs by the Cubs. Flubs by the Cubs. So Mr. Vec wrote scathing articles and columns about the Cubs following the 1918 World Series, often kind of focusing on what he would be doing differently. Mm-hmm. So the following season, William Wrigley Jr. and two others bought a controlling interest of the team from Charles Wegman. Wrigley brought in Vec to a club board meeting in December of 1918 and asked him if he could do any better running the Cubs than the previous management had. He replied, quote, I certainly couldn't do any worse. <laughs> he was That's funny. He was then hired on the spot as the vice president and treasurer of the Cubs. Nice. He was also given stock in the team. Couldn't do any worse. Good interview. You, That's you, an you amazing got it. move. Talk badly about something enough that they're like, all right, what do you think we should do? Well, hire me and, and I'll... Hire me and, and you'll see. <laughs> and then the guy just says, okay, yeah. which like never happens. The first task, Mr. V embarked on was making the ballpark more attractive to both genders. They cleaned the ballpark and gave priority to women's uh, restrooms. They improved the women's mm-hmm. restrooms. On opening day of the 1919 season, instead of politicians throwing out the first pitch, they selected two men who had recently returned from World War I to throw out the first pitch. The crowd loved it. Yeah. At this time, Bill Jr. is five years old and spends a ton of time at the park with his dad. Mr. Vec is promoted to president within a year and completely changes the view on running a ball club. So he was doing a pretty good job, presumably. Within a year, he's right. promoted to president. He starts writing columns that explain the moves that the team is making. He gets better, more informative interviews with managers and with uh, Wrigley's direction. They did some of the things that had made Wrigley's chewing gum very successful. They advertised, promoted, and created goodwill. I was going to ask if you knew if the Wrigley from the Cubs was yeah. the Wrigley from the gum. Yeah, it is. 
I assumed it was because I think I think I knew both were in Chicago. Yeah. I just never really made that connection in my head. Isn't that funny that an old money family is like gum? Yeah. yeah. We we a gum family. <laughs> for instance, uh, for the Goodwill stuff, they held an Army-Navy game while the Cubs were on the road. And that game benefited the Chicago Babies Free Milk Fund. So again, this is right after World War One, when like supplies are limited on everything. Mm-hmm. So everybody's got had to buy war bonds and stuff. So they also dealt firmly with infielder Lee McGee, who they let go for seemingly no reason. Later, McGee admitted to having been a part of fixing a game for the Reds back in 1918. That shit used to happen a lot, I guess. Huh? Yeah, right, because you could make more money. Right now, yeah. the players make yeah, if you millions make money, and millions of dollars worth, a year, it's so. not worth the risk. So, like, even if someone's like, "Here, we'll give you a million dollars to lose this game," I don't care. I make 120 million dollars. Yeah, yeah. So attendance grew steadily under Vec's direction. He also hired the first female club secretary in baseball in 1924, named Margaret Donahue. When Bill Jr. was 11, his father took him down to Donahue's desk, which was covered in the gate receipts from the day's game. So all the money is just lying yep. on her desk. Mr. Vax saying to Bill Jr., quote, You know, Bill, you look at the money and it all looks exactly the same, doesn't it? You can't tell who put it in the box office. It's all the same color, the same size, and the same shape. You remember that. The advice stayed with Bill Jr. and became a talking point later in his life whenever asked about why he seemingly was totally unbiased towards racial or religious or any other groups. Mm-hmm. It's a good teaching point. Yeah. It's also kind of morality, seemingly, but also just capitalism. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't I don't care where the money's coming from. On this same notion, Mr. Veck instituted a few Ladies' Day games on Fridays, which gave women free tickets. Many of them paid to upgrade to box seats when they arrived at the stadium. On July 6th, 1930, 30,476 women crammed into Wrigley Field. Wow. The total attendance of 51,556 people was grossly over the capacity of 40,000 for the park. Okay. A lot of standing room. Yeah. I'll never forget it, Vec recalled. The biggest mob of women I ever saw in one place in my life. We got in all we could. Thousands were left outside. (laughs) Ladies' Day continued to grow, so the Cubs changed the process and limited the number of tickets that could be requested. So at first they made it so that you had to mail in an envelope with a self-addressed envelope in it with a stamp on it, Mm -hmm. and then they would mail you back two tickets. Okay. Okay. And then they eventually had to change that to one. I feel like if that were to happen nowadays, there would be such a... Okay, so I got a free ticket. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna sell this ticket for thirty bucks. Yeah, yeah. There's not really which like a didn't really ha- didn't yeah. really happen back then. But like, or like, okay, I got these two free tickets. Let me take my husband, or let me take my my brother. Anyways, like early on, it's only baseball games are thought of as only a male thing. Mm-hmm. And Vec recognized, listen, if we want to have families at the ballpark, we need to make it so that it's not right. Mom like, and scared. dad. Could yeah, come. exactly. Exactly. So he then had to build out a staff of six people just to handle the mailing it, the incoming and outgoing <laughs> tickets funny. to deal with uh, ladies day because they were getting 40,000 to 50,000 requests for each game. Yeah, that's uh, a lot of work, I'm yeah. sure. So Bill Jr. is growing up. He's an avid reader, just like his father, but he's uh, poorly behaved in school. He plays baseball. He hangs out with his dad at the stadium as much as possible and eventually becomes a popcorn vendor for the Cubs. Quote, by the time I was 12, Bill Jr. remembers, I decided that I was going to own a baseball team. Oh, I had plans too. That I figured I could be sandwiched in because for me, each day seemed to have at least 30 hours. But my life was going to be centered on baseball. It was inevitable. In high school, there wasn't a baseball team for Bill, so he played football. He was the only member of the team that refused to wear a helmet. (laughs) 
<laughs> After his sophomore year, he was sent to a private school in New Mexico with many of the country's elite kids. He was, quote, the tough public school kid uh, there for the next year and a half. Although he didn't technically ever graduate from high school, he took the college board examinations and passed and was accepted into Kenyon College in Ohio. So went to college without graduating high school. Exactly. Interesting. I guess things were probably a lot uh, looser back then yeah. in terms of rules. Yeah. While Bill Jr. had been getting his education, his father had turned the Cubs even more profitable. He had signed deals with radio stations to air all Cubs home games. While many other teams thought that airing radio broadcasts would give fans a reason to not buy tickets, Mr. Vec took the opposite angle and saw it as a tool for revenue and to bring new fans into the stadiums. Right. right. Like, oh, you can't come to the game? Just listen to it. And then they're invested in the team the whole season. Right. Whereas the other executives are like, why would we allow somebody else to broadcast a radio broadcast of our games when like, people are just going to sit home and listen to it instead of coming to the game? Right. He proved to be right. Cubs attendance steadily improved. However, as the Depression hit... And and William Wrigley died in 1932, things started to decline. In 1933, Mr. Vec proposed each team play four interleague games to try to drum up more interest in baseball. At the time, the American League was much more popular than the National League, and the plan was vetoed by American League owners. This is in 1933. Yeah. An interleague play becomes a, a thing like, oh, 50 years later. Probably more. more right. than, when 60? did it happen? Like, it, was, it was late 90s, right? Yeah, it was definitely in the 90s. Okay. Late so 90s. 60, yeah, 60 or 70 years later, yeah. everybody's like, hey, that thing the guy was talking about doing? Let's do it. Let's do that, yeah. So during the 1933 season, though, Mr. Vec starts becoming ill. It was originally thought he had the flu after he attended a, a raining game in New York, and he started feeling sick after that, but he would eventually pass away on October 5th, 1933, at the age of 57 from leukemia. Oh, young man. He, he left behind his wife, Grace, and his two children, Margaret and Bill Jr. Upon Mr. Vec's death, Phil Wrigley, who's the son of William Wrigley, mm. assumed the responsibilities of president for the Cubs. Bill Jr. was hired after finishing up at Kenyon College to be an office boy and jack-of-all-trades. Wrigley hired Charles Boots Weber as his new Boots. treasurer, and he quickly became Bill Jr.'s mentor. Wrigley had brought in, so the son Wrigley, uh, Phil Wrigley, had brought in a ton of gum executives to help the team. And whereas William Wrigley was like very outgoing and like a salesman by nature, mm -hmm. Phil Wrigley was more of an introvert and he was shy, just would disagree and then slowly kind of withdraw and then like not talk to the person he disagreed with. Mm -hmm. Bill Jr. saw these gum men as, their, as a very buttoned up and risk averse type of group. They never wanted to do anything exciting for fans. Quote, the one point at which we clashed perennially was promotion. I wanted it. He didn't. He was the boss. He won every argument, <laughs> Bill Jr. said. Another item they clashed on was lights. Bill Jr. brought the idea for night games as a way to increase attendance, but was shot down. Right? So most of the time during day games, during the week, if you have a job, you can't go. Right. Right? So Unless if you put it at night, night it sounds like all these things sound Bill Wrigley, so common sense. Bill Wrigley? Uh, Bill Veck. Now, what, what's the Wrigley's name? Phil. Phil Wrigley. Phil Wrigley. Phil and Bill. It sounds like the original Wrigley, whatever his name was, I don't remember. But William. Okay, so he that's was, why I'm confused. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot uh, of Bills Okay, in so, so William Wrigley sounds like, you know, grew up maybe not the most wealthy person, built his business, go-getter, salesman, outgoing, really yeah, needed to yeah. build his business, and got it there and then, you know, bought the Cubs and, like, worked the same way. Phil Wrigley seems like he's just, like, a rich kid that grew up with a trust fund. Well, Andy seems like trying not to change anything. There, there are thoughts that he was more of a baseball purist mm -hmm. and that that was part of it, too. Okay. So, so 
the idea of lights, right? It was shot down. And the Reds, a year later, would be the first team to play night games under the lights, and they would see their attendance skyrocket. Yeah, now almost every game's played under the lights, you know, during the week. Yeah, right? I mean, pretty much every game. Yeah. Uh, Boots Weber entrusted Bill Jr. with the concessions. Bill brought in a motley crew of hawkers, as is kind of still the case a little bit. Some of the people are a little shady. Peanuts and Cracker Jacks. Yeah, so there was uh, there was this one guy, Jack Ruby, who would do these kind of shady sales tactics where he would bump into somebody and then shove a program into the, like, their hand as he like bumped into him and then demand a quarter from them. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> and, and things like that. That's a great sales move. So Jack Ruby is actually best known for shooting Lee Harvey Oswald three decades later. Oh. And he was he was that concession guy I was just talking Interesting. about. Interesting. Uh, eventually, the Cubs and White Sox formed a vendors union uh, with the vendors that worked at their stadium so that they could get better employees. And then, you know, for the vendor side, they could actually earn a living wage. Mm-hmm. Right. So they kind of eventually tried to get rid of all these shady people that right. had their park. He also formed a relationship with Ray Kroc during this time, who at the time was the supplier of paper cups for the Cubs. Eventually, Ray Kroc would go on to meet up with the McDonald brothers and lead the explosion of growth for McDonald's and basically create the concept of fast food franchising. Huh, interesting. So that's who he bought paper. I also never knew, and I guess it makes sense, but that McDonald's was founded by the McDonald brothers. Yeah, and then Ray Kroc is really the guy that grew it. I understand. McDonald's hamburgers. Yeah. Bill Jr. got engaged in December of 1934 to Eleanor Raymond. Her father was a friend of John Ringling North, and Eleanor worked as an equestrian and elephant trainer for the circus. The two married at a private ceremony after her contract with the circus concluded. Bill said her daredeviltry appealed to him, but Eleanor maintained that he exaggerated her feats with the circus. Okay. In 1937, Bill Jr. is credited with making one of the most recognizable decisions in sports. He came up with the idea of growing ivy on the outfield wall at Wrigley Field. Mm. It was added as an attempt to make the stadium look better and also to pad the walls for outfielders during a series of stadium renovations. I mean, it is a cool thing that they got there on that field. Yeah, the, it's the, the only, only non-padded wall in Major League so Baseball. So what's behind the ivy? Just brick? Brick. Funny. <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. So he so this was a part of they had a bunch of investors from California coming in and they thought that that would make the stadium look nicer. I mean, it does right? look it cool. It does. It's beautiful, yeah. right? At 27 years old, Vec bought his first ball club, the Milwaukee Brewers of the AA American Association, then the highest level of the minors. He sometimes said he paid nothing for the failing franchise while assuming $100,000 in debts. But the Brewers business manager, Rudy Schaefer, said Vec put in $40,000 of his own money. It was mostly other people's money, though, as it always would be when Vec bought a team. The 19... oh, so he bought multiple teams. Yeah. The 1941 Brewers were in last place when he took over, bringing along one of his investors, Charlie Grimm, as manager. Grimm, who played first base and the banjo left-handed, had managed the Cubs' 1935 pennant winner. Uh, Jolly Cholly was a perfect fit for, for Vec. There's some nicknames in this yeah, story. Yeah. Uh, Milwaukee became Vec's tryout camp where he auditioned his promotional schemes. He took the successful ones with him to the majors. He cleaned and painted the Brewers' dilapidated park. He gave away prizes almost every night, showing a fascination for animals. He gave away live lobsters, pigeons, chickens, guinea pigs, and a particular <laughs> favorite, a sway-backed horse. Oh. <laughs> It's like, you know, nowadays they give out the towels. The first 30,000 people that come to the stadium get a towel. Or like it's bat day and you get a bat. I don't know if they do that anymore, but they used to when I was younger. Right, right. Uh, Most of the promotions were not announced in advance. He wanted fans to come to the games anticipating a surprise. 
He scheduled morning games for overnight workers at war, war plants and served a breakfast of cornflakes to all, everyone that came to the game. Huh. He believed a trip to the ballpark should be fun, but he also built a winning team. Vec bought players spending money he did not have and sold them to raise capital for more purchases. The Brewers nearly won the American Association pennant in 1942, his first full season, then won the next three in a row. Okay. So he's bringing, right? So he's a pretty good exec. and success, yeah. Vec later wrote that he tried to buy the bankrupt Philadelphia Phillies after the 1942 season and intended to stock the team with black players, breaking the organized baseball's color line three years before Jackie Robinson would sign with the Dodgers. In his 1962 autobiography, he asserted that he had lined up financing and enlisted the promoter Abe Saberstein, owner of the Harlem Globetrotters to help sign Negro League stars. Vec said he informed Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis of his plan as a courtesy, and Landis and the National League president Ford Frick thwarted him by arranging a quick sale of the Phillies to another buyer. Huh. Yeah. Should have never said anything, and he could have done it. Yeah. After a stint in World War II during which he lost his right leg, Vec sought a path into the major leagues, devising a debt stock group that enabled financial backers to put the majority of their money into loan for the team, Vec was able to become a minority owner of the Cleveland Indians for only $268,000 in 1946. Relishing his first chance in the big leagues, Vec immediately enlivened a franchise that hadn't won a World Series since 1920. Vec brought his stunts, fireworks, and giveaways with him. He hired a clown, Max Patkin, to be coach and put the Indians games on the radio. Vec also staged a, quote, good old Joe Early night for a fan who complained that the Indians were honoring everyone except the average Joe. Huh. So this one fan saying, hey, listen, on these nights you're honoring war vets. On these other nights you're honoring right. factory what workers. About, what about me? What about I'm, me I'm Joe Schmo. Yeah, yeah. I'm Joe Schmo. Where's so my said, night? So Let's said, have Joe Schmo night. <laughs> average Joe night. In 1947, Vec made his biggest imprint to date when he signed Larry Doby as the first African-American player in the American League, 11 weeks after Jackie Robinson joined the Dodgers. Hmm. Cool. So he was very, and I, you mentioned it before when his dad kind of ingrained him with the, the whole money thing, like it doesn't matter. He was very uh, pro-people's rights. Yeah, yeah. The whole money's all the same color, mm -hmm. doesn't matter. So quote, one by one, manager Lou Boudreaux introduced me to each player, Doby recalled, so he's the new African-American player. All the players put out their hands to shake, all but three. As soon as he could, Bill got rid of those three players. Good for him. Yeah, right? The following year, Vex signed 42-year-old Negro League legend Satchel Paige, making Paige the oldest rookie in Major League history. Later that fall, the Indians completed their transformation by winning their first World Series in 28 years in the 1948 series in six games over the Boston Braves. Responding to sneers that his stunts were decidedly lowbrow, Vec said, quote, My tastes, I have found, are so average that nothing that appeals strongly to me is probably going to appeal to most of the customers. In his philosophy, Every day was Mardi Gras, and every fan a king and a queen. He gave away nylon stockings, which were hard to get after the war. He gave away orchids on Mother's Day. After he took over in June of 1946, he pushed the Indians' lagging attendance above a million for the first time. Hmm. He moved the games from League Park, which had, a, had room for only 22,500 people, to Municipal Stadium, which had a capacity of 78,000. The team uh, had previously only used the bigger park on Sundays, holidays, and games. For like the big sellers. Yeah, exactly. He also removed the door to his office and listed his home phone number in the public directory. Huh. Again, he's like, I'm here. If you've got an idea, I want to hear it. Right. He's a man of the people. Yeah. Never a man to look back, Beck famously buried the Indians' 1948 championship flag in 1949 when it was clear the team was not going to repeat. 
An expensive divorce settlement with his wife forced him to sell his stake in the team, though. Right, because the stock that they owned was joint stock, right? Mm -hmm. So he had to sell the team during the divorce. The divorce had been a long time coming as they had been separated and gotten back together numerous times over the years. Vec reemerged two years later, though, when he bought the struggling St. Louis Browns franchise. Though the Browns shared Sportsman's Park with the more successful Cardinals, Vec immediately stuffed the Redbirds' feathers by hiring former Cardinals stars Rogers Hornsby and Marty Marion as managers. He also decorated Sportsman's Park exclusively with Browns memorabilia. They own the park, but the Cardinals play in it too, and they like made it their good park. For both, yeah, right. Originally, and then they made it strictly Browns. Though the stadium felt more accommodating, the Browns still struggled out of the gate in 1951. Anxious to attract more fans, Vec came up with arguably his most creative publicity stunt. Quote, What can I do? I asked myself. This is so spectacular that no one will ever be able to say he'd seen it before, he recalled. The answer was obvious. I would send a midget up to bat. (laughs) I've seen, I've I've been to the Baseball Hall of Fame and I saw the jersey. It's funny. On August 19th, 1951, a three foot seven inch man named Eddie Guidel walked to the plate as a pinch hitter for the Browns. Wearing the uniform number one One Half. Oh, it was one eight. one eight. I thought it was one half. Gadell used his minuscule strike zone to draw a walk on four consecutive pitches. He was promptly replaced by a pinch runner at first base, completing his day as the shortest man to ever play in major leagues. Nice. His strike zone is like the size of a cherry. Yeah. Uh, it's like no big, one's, it is it's, the size of a ball. It's the size of the ball, so yeah. you have to pitch it perfect. Yeah. American League President Will Harridge denounced the stunt as a mockery of the game and voided Goodell's contract. <laughs> Quote, I try not to break the rules, but merely to test their elasticity, that would later say. Sounds like a Bill Belichick line. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> Five days after Gittle's stunt, Vec was at it again. He introduced Grandstand Manager's Day, in which fans were given placards that told manager Zach Taylor whether the team should try to steal a base, bunt, or change pitchers. <laughs> what, they would just hold it up? <laughs> they would hold them up. That's hilarious. With Taylor sitting back in a rocking chair, Vec and the fans skippered the Browns to a 5-3 to victory over the Philadelphia Athletics. That's hilarious. Wouldn't the other team know what you were doing then? Oh, look, the crowd's saying... I don't, I don't I don't think it mattered. I mean that's so funny. I guess also too, it's behind the pitcher, but the catch I mean, but the catcher can see it. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Quote I have discovered in twenty years of moving around a ballpark that the knowledge of the game is usually in inverse proportion to the price of the seats, Vex said. The smartest fans are in the bleachers mm-hmm. because they come to the most games, so they want the cheapest ticket. Usually. Right. They're not going to pay five bucks a ticket when yeah. they could get a ticket to every game for one dollar. Right, right. Attendance doubled for the Browns, even though the team remained in the cellar from 1951 to 1952. Despite Vex's best efforts, the Browns' financial issues, coupled with increasing pressure from opposing owners, forced him to sell the team to a group from Baltimore after the 1952 season. I think that's when they became the Orioles. Oh, that's interesting. I think the Browns became the Orioles. The Cleveland Browns became the Baltimore Ravens. Oh, yeah. And these Browns became the Baltimore Orioles. And the Baltimore Colts became the Indianapolis Colts. But that's that doesn't really connect. That's true. Other than the Baltimore part. <laughs> Baltimore. Team You're just go, saying. Teams go in and out. Uh, Vec was back in baseball in 1959 when he bought a controlling interest in the Chicago White Sox. True to form, Vec immediately made his mark by installing baseball's first exploding scoreboard at Comiskey Park. <laughs> what is an exploding scoreboard? The sporting news marveled. It shrieks, wiggles, burps, whines, and twinkles. 
Fireworks explode beneath the scoreboard while tape recordings give out virtually every sound imaginable. A cavalry charge, machine gun fire, two trains crashing head-on, subway screechings, jet bombers, and a woman screaming, Fireman, save my child! The cacophony delighted fans and infuriated rep- opponents. <laughs> Cleveland outfielder Jimmy Pearsall threw a baseball at the scoreboard. Casey Stengel orchestrated a puckish response. After Mickey Mantle hit a home run, Stengel and the Yankees paraded in front of the visitors' dugouts waving sparklers interesting in a game that would be funny like you hit a home run it's like three to two now in the in the sixth inning and you just run up with sparklers <laughs> and again now every scoreboard makes noises right although like Sound digital and, now everything's right. digital but animations of fireworks mm-hmm. and things like that for opening day in 1959 he also gave a free beer to all fans during the seventh inning stretch that must have been a long line yeah Vet grew his frenetic energy into filling Comiskey Park, making as many as three speeches a day and appearing on radio and television shows from morning till midnight. One morning, he showed up at his office at 5 a.m. and startled the night watchman watching the park. He gave away orchids on Mother's Day in the same game. The lucky chair prize was 36 live lobsters. Other fans received a thousand cans of beer, a thousand pies, a thousand bottles of root beer, a thousand cupcakes, and a hundred free restaurant dinners. Said Vec, quote, You give a thousand people a can of beer and each of them will drink it, smack his lips, and go back to watching the game. You give a thousand cans to one guy and there's always an outside possibility that 50,000 people will talk about it. He also staged free days for cab drivers and bartenders, believing they were valuable public relations boosters for the club. Right? Cab drivers and bartenders talk to more people than anybody, right? Right. Oh, someone gets in the cab. Oh, did you see the, uh, the White Sox game last night? Exactly. After fans booed left fielder Al Smith, Vec let everyone with the last name Smith or Smith with a Y or Schmidt in free. Or anyone that had an S in their name. Yeah, pretty much. Or a TH. Let them in for free as Al's guest. So that basically it was like, hey, don't boo Al. Look at all the people he's bringing in. (laughs) This is is Smith Day. Yeah. Comiskey Park attendance reached a franchise record 1,423,144, but it fell just short of the Chicago record set by Vec's father with the Cubs in 1929. Later that year, the White Sox captured their first AL pennant in 40 seasons and set a team attendance record. In 1960, Vec introduced his most lasting innovation yet. He put players' names on the back of their road uniforms, and then the next year, names were added to home uniforms as well. Well, now they're only on road uniforms, aren't they? No. On home uniforms too. Yeah, I think so. I'm pretty sure the Red Sox home uniforms don't have don't have names on them unless it's changed recently. But I'm fairly certain it's just numbers on the Red Sox uniforms. As of 2010, Yankees, Red Sox, and the San Francisco Giants were the only teams to not display players' oh, okay. last names on their. So home I was uniforms. kind of right. Yeah, yeah. You're right about the Red Sox. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's basically what I base yeah. my information <laughs> off of. I mean, Boston I don't really, I don't really watch any any other baseball games. Yeah. other than the Red Sox. So every team except the Giants, Yankees, and Red Sox. Funny. Interesting. Followed suit. Interesting. So the 1960 White Sox broke the Chicago attendance record with more than 1.6 million fans in 1960, but Vec was starting to suffer from a frightening health condition. He was a chain smoker, and he broke down into coughing fits that sometimes caused him to pass out. Oh, jeez. In April of 1961, he went to the Mayo Clinic for tests. Doctors diagnosed him with a variety of ailments and prescribed retirement. 
It's a very medical diagnosis. Here, I'm just going to write you this, you know, this prescription. working. Retire. (laughs) Vex sold his share of the team to one of his partners and moved to Maryland on the shore of the Chesapeake Bay. He called the place that he moved Tranquility. Right? So he's going to... He's going to just chill out for a little while. When his health improved, Vec made an unsuccessful attempt to buy the Washington Senators, then operated Suffolk Downs Racetrack in Boston. Oh. In 1969 to 1970. Vec was not heard from again in baseball circles until 1975 when he purchased the White Sox from John Allen, uh, who was the sole owner since he sold it. Vec's return uh, bothered baseball's owner establishment. Most of the old guard viewed him as a uh, pariah after exposing most of their peers in his 1961 book, Vec, as in Wreck, which is why I know how to correctly say his name. Because <laughs> it's with two E's. So you'd think it'd be Veek. Oh, it's, it's V-E-E-C-K? Vec. Yeah. So Vec however, was the only potential buyer willing to keep the White Sox in Chicago after an offer was made to buy the team and move it to Seattle by somebody else. So they eventually sell to Vec. Quick side note. So he was not owner of the White Sox when they had 10 cent beer night, which is like a whole other story mm-hmm. about riots at baseball games. Almost immediately after taking control of the White Sox for a second time, Vec unleashed another publicity stunt designed to irritate his fellow owners. He and general manager Roland Hammond conducted four trades in a hotel lobby in full view of the public. Two weeks later, however, arbitrator Peter Seitz's rulings struck down the reserve clause and that basically basically started the era of free agency. Okay. So he basically started free agency. Yeah. That's wild. Vec presented a bicentennial-themed Spirit of 76 parade on opening day in 1976, casting him himself as the peg-legged Pfeiffer bringing up the rear. Right, because right. he only had one line. He only has I one forgot line. about that. In the same year, he reactivated Mini Minoso for eight at-bats in order to give Minoso a claim towards playing in four decades. He did it again in 1980 to expand that claim to five. <laughs> Pretty cool. <laughs> He also unveiled radically altered uniforms for the players, including clam digger pants and even shorts, which the Sox wore for the first time against the Kansas City Royals on August 8th, 1976. Have you ever seen some of the crazy no. White Sox uniforms? So they have these ones where they have collars. Yeah. It's almost like a even more golf shirt. Oh, funny. Yeah. Even though like I like some of the stuff that this guy has done, there are a lot of, not as much anymore, but a lot of baseball purists. And it's kind of screwing with all those guys, you know? Basically, he's he's the idea that's become more popular now of like, hey, let's just try a bunch of stuff. Whatever works, we'll keep doing. Right. And if he it was doesn't just, work, we'll just move on. He was just well before his time. Yeah. So, in an attempt to adapt to free agency, he developed a rent-a-player model, centering on the acquisition of other club stars in their option years. At the time, most people are like, oh, well, we wouldn't trade for that guy. He's only got one year left. But he's running on a shoestring budget. And he's like, no, we'll rent that player for the last six months of the season and hopefully make a playoff charge. Right, and then he'll hit, and then he could hit free agency. You get a player that you could never afford. It, it sort of worked. In 1977, the White Sox won 90 games and finished in third place uh, with additions of Oscar Gamble and Richie Zisk, who were good players at the time. During this last run, Vec decided to have announcer Harry Carey sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game during the seventh inning stretch. Vec asked Carey to sing for the entire park, but he refused. Vec replied that he was all—he already had a recording, so Carrie would be heard either way. And you can go along with the plan, or you cannot. Right. Either way, you're singing it. It doesn't matter. Carrie reluctantly agreed to sing live, accompanied by White Sox organist Nancy Faust, and went on to become famous for singing the tune, continuing to do so at Wrigley Field after becoming a broadcaster for the Chicago Cubs. Huh. Funny. He didn't want to do it, and then it like became like, what he's most well-known yeah, for. It's his thing. 
And that brings us to the 1979 season, Davin, which was filled with more promotions. On April 10th, Vec offered fans free admission the day after a 10-2 opening day defeat to the Toronto Blue Jays. He was he was like so embarrassed about the loss that, that he was like, just like next game next game is free we'll we'll back. make it up to you. He also installed showers in the bleachers for like hot days. They had like showers, almost like you'd see at a beach that you pull the thing. Yeah, and... that's interesting. That's a move. On July nineteenth, nineteen seventy nine, the White Sox had a scheduled doubleheader with the Detroit Tigers. At the time, do you know where this is going yet? No. Okay. At the time, many rock music fans had come to despise disco. By 1977, disco was popular in the United States, especially after the release that year of the hit movie Saturday Night Fever. Many hated the music for the lifestyle associated with it, feeling that in the disco scene, personal appearance and style of dress were over important. Still no? No. Was there like a disco night? Is that what's happening? Coming up. The media emphasized its roots in gay culture. According to historian Jillian Frank, the media commonly emphasized that disco was gay and cultivated a widespread perception that disco was taking over. Performers who cultivated a gay image, such as the village people, who were described by Rolling Stone at the time as the face of disco, did nothing to change these perceptions, and fears that rock music was in decline increased after disco albums dominated the 1979 Grammy Awards. Hmm. So, right, the prevalent idea is disco is killing rock music. Mm-hmm. Right? The previous year, New York's WKTU-FM, a low-rated rock station, had switched to disco and became the most popular station in the country. Oh, jeez. This led other stations to try to emulated success. In Chicago, Craig Dahl, a disc jockey who was 24 years old, was working as a DJ for the local radio station WDAI when he was fired on Christmas Eve of 1978, in part because the station was switching from rock to disco. He was subsequently hired by rival rock station WLUP, The Loop, sensing an incoming anti-disco backlash and playing off the publicity surrounding his firing, he created a mock organization that he called the Insane Coho Lips, which was an anti-disco army consisting of his listeners. <laughs> Dahl had talked about blowing up disco records with his anti-disco army. At this time, Bill Jr.'s son, Mike, the eldest from his second marriage, was serving as the promotions director for the White Sox in 1979. He met with Dahl and organized for him to blow up the records at Comiskey Park between the doubleheader games. It became known as Disco Demolition Night, <laughs> and anyone who brought a disco record to blow up would be admitted for only 98 cents. Oh, nice. That's fun. Leading up to it, Dahl is constantly promoting the event on air. Bill, at this point, is not involved in the day-to-day operation of the club. He's just the owner, right? I bet there was a ton of backlash on this, too. Oh, yeah. So, Bill's 65 at this point. His health's not great. So, he's he's the owner... He like does press conferences and stuff. He has one leg. He's yeah. got an eye patch. Rides on a boat all day. He raises his flag <laughs> and takes over other boats. Basically a pirate at this yeah. point. The team expected twenty thousand people in attendance. So the White Sox weren't good this year. But Bill's son Mike was a little worried, and he hired enough security for thirty-five thousand fans just in case. The official attendance that day was reported as 47,795, even though the capacity of the stadium was only 44,492. Those at the game estimated it was far north of 50,000 people, though, with several thousand more outside. They slowly found their ways into the stadium without being ticketed or like going through a turnstile. People just wanted to blow up Disco. This was easily the largest attendance for White Sox games during his second stint as an owner. Bill Jr. left the hospital that morning where he was having some tests run to go to the game and headed to Comiskey Park. Along the way, he saw huge groups of people with lewd signs, and the crowds seemed much more like mobs. Okay. Not a good sign. 
As people entered the stadium, they were supposed to discard their records into a box. Okay, so so that they the could bring them onto the field and blow them up. Exactly. However, the White Sox grossly underestimated how many people would bring records. After the boxes overflowed, people just began holding on to their records and taking them with them into the stands. Yeah. As the first game started at 6 o'clock, Mike got word that fans were trying to get into the park without tickets. They get to the point where they can't let anybody else in. And then people are just trying to storm in. Exactly. He sent almost his whole security staff to the gates to try to help keep those people at bay. This left the field unattended, and fans began throwing their disco records onto the field from the <laughs> Beautiful. stands. I didn't see that coming at all. <laughs> the records would come flying down. Right? Again, a record's very thin, too. It's not a Frisbee, so if it, like, hit you... Yeah, it would cut come, off your head. It would, like, cut you, right? The records would come flying down from the stands and into the ground. Yeah. The game was stopped several times due to foreign objects being thrown onto the field. White Sox outfielder, a White Sox player, Rusty Torres recalls, quote, the first disc that was thrown missed the right side of my head by only a couple inches. They were yelling, Rusty, disco sucks! <laughs> and Rusty was like, I, I kind of liked disco at the time, but I wasn't going to say anything about it. Right, because otherwise I would have had 12 disco albums hurled at my face. Exactly. So several banners and signs around the stadium proclaimed disco sucks. Also, and sucks is like a bad word at this time, right? Mm -hmm. Also, the fans there for Disco Demolition Night were very drunk and also high. Mike remembers that the stadium reeked of marijuana that night and many sections of the park were completely packed shoulder to shoulder, Mm -hmm. right? So you've got like all these people packed into this area. Everybody's messed up. After the Tigers won the first game, Dahl took to the field to blow up the records. He entered the field in a green Jeep that looked like an army Jeep and was wearing a military outfit. He takes the mic and proclaims... Well, listen, we took all the disco records that you brought tonight. We got them in a giant box. And we're going to blow them up real good. And then they proceed to blow up the records in a crate in center field. And pieces of records go flying everywhere. <laughs> so they blow up all the records and after the explosions doll exits the field gets back on the jeep and they take like a victory lap where he's waving to everybody and uh white Sox pitcher ken craven who was getting the start in the second game goes to the mound to start warming up right people then just started running onto the field they were just so amped up with security still at the gates keeping people from getting in there was nobody to stop them right and it was basically free reign. One of the broadcasters said, as this is happening, quote, Baseball is no longer the story here. It's the crowd, and the White Sox may have to forfeit the second game. Huh. I feel like nowadays, if something like that happened, it would just be postponed. Well, they postponed it, and then, well, I'll get to that. So the fans set the field on fire, <laughs> along with portions of the park. It basically becomes a riot. Bill took to the mic and said, quote, This is Bill Veck. Please clear the park or we'll have to call off the game and close the park. Fans were running the bases. Someone dug up and stole home plate. I mean, if I was out there like during this time and everyone's running on the field and it's like a free-for-all, I'm going to run on the field too. Shit, I'm not leaving. I don't care if you have to call the game. What does that matter to me? Apparently there was a couple who had sex behind third base just on the field. Harry Carey tried his best to calm the park. Quote, holy cow. Let's say we all regain our seats so that we can play baseball again. You know, it's like so good nature. Paul Sullivan, who attended the game with his friends, they went and were sitting in the Tigers' dugout, passing around a bottle of Jack Daniels and recalls, quote, one of the Tigers' coaches comes out and says, son, give me that bottle. 
And I was like, yes, sir, and gave him the bottle. Then he said, son, get out of the dugout. And then they left. <laughs> After 20 minutes, Carrie and Bill tried again to get fans to return to their seats, singing, take me out to the ball game. Right? They're like, let's get these people on our let's side. Let's do whatever we can yeah. to make it so we can play this game. Eventually, though, they had to send police who were in riot gear onto the field to chase people off. After 40 minutes of fans being on the field, there were burn marks, holes, puddles of beer, debris, and broken glass. After clearing the field, the grounds crew went to work to try to get the field in playing condition. Eventually, Bill got on the mic to announce, quote, The umpire chief and the president of the league has declared the playing conditions of the field will not permit them to play the second ball game. The crowd cheered. <laughs> like, I don't want to sit through another one of these. I already sat through a three-hour game. After the game, Bill said, quote, It was a disastrous evening from my standpoint. There's no number of tickets that you could sell that would make this worthwhile. At the end of the game, there were 39 arrests. There were some injuries, but no one died. They say that this event killed disco. But really, it's just one big message from kids saying that they were over disco and didn't want to hear it anymore. The Tigers manager said of the events, quote, Beer and baseball go together. They have for years. But I think those kids were doing things other than beer. Yeah, it's a... <laughs> Fingers were pointed after the event. So basically, Bill's son contends that the radio station knew that there'd be more people and never let him know. Mm -hmm. Right? But it was this thing where, I mean, a lot of times when you do a promotion, you don't know how many people are going to show up. Right. You don't know if it's going to explode and everyone's going to love it or if it's... they. The radio station and the, and the White Sox can't point fingers at each other. The field crew worked overnight and got the field fixed in working order for the following day which was Friday the 13th, where the White Sox lost. Mm. They finished the season that year 78-82. and 82. So not a great season. Not a great year. By 1980, Vex luck, money, and health were running out. The 66-year-old's hearing and eyesight were failing. He suffered from emphysema and underwent an operation on his remaining leg. But he could not even leave the game without controversy. When he agreed to sell the White Sox to shopping mall maven Edward DeBartolo, the American League refused to approve the deal on the grounds that DeBartolo was an absentee owner who also owned racetracks. DeBartolo suspected the real reason was his Italian heritage with its stereotype of mafia connections. Vex said, quote, I've never been ashamed to be a member of the American League but I am now. Hmm. So the DeBartolos eventually bought the uh, 49ers. Okay. Chicago real estate developer Jerry Reinsdorf and television entrepreneur Eddie Einhorn bought the club. Einhorn? Einhorn. Einhorn is Finkel? Finkel, Finkel is, is Einhorn? Einhorn is a man. At their first press conference, Einhorn promised to run a high-class operation. Vec was insulted and never again went to Comiskey Park. Einhorn later insisted he meant no offense to Vec, but did not back away from his criticism of Vec's operation. Quote, he called his ballpark the world's largest outdoor saloon and was proud of it, Einhorn said. We came in immediately and tried to change that image, and we succeeded in making it a family place to be. Vec returned to his roots as a Cubs fan and became a regular in the raucous Wrigley Field bleachers. In 1984, he contracted lung cancer. He died at the age of 71 on January 2nd, 1986. His cremated remains were spread at Oakwood Cemetery in Chicago. He and his second wife, Mary Frances, had been married for 35 years. She said, quote, It was a romance from the beginning to the end. She continued to live in Chicago, and when the White Sox won the 2005 World Series, the club gave championship rings to her and the members of the Comiskey family. Nice. Besides Wrigley Fields Ivy, Bill Vex's baseball legacy is his son, Mike, part owner and flamboyant promoter of several minor league teams. Mike's most famous stunt was vasectomy day, a day where a fan would get a free vasectomy on Father's Day, but that was aborted by religious uh, opposition. That's hilarious. He said of his father, quote, he had the tremendous sense of the absurd and he gave that to me. 
Vec was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1991. His enemies on the Veterans Committee kept him out until he was dead. His plaque at Cooperstown reads, quote, a champion of the little guy. <laughs> a little nod to the yeah, to having the midget. A little nod to the midget. <laughs> little nod to the midget. <laughs> they don't like to be called midgets. Yeah, li- yeah, little people. Uh, so that's the story of Bill Vec Jr. and a little bit about his dad too. Yeah, you know, fair amount. It's kind of a combo. Yeah, you, you get the history. One story you get the history behind him. him. So yeah, so all in all, he was an owner of four four different teams and the White Sox in that twice. And a one-time pirate. And a one-time pirate. Yeah, but sure. not not from Pittsburgh. That's right. That's right. Are you going to win the World Series this year? So, I mean, the big thing I kind of take away from this is that, sure, there are baseball purists, but, I mean, sports by nature is meant to be fun. Right. And so, I mean, don't take yourself too seriously. I think there's a a good way to do it and a bad way to do it, and he kind of was right on that border. Right. Because some things blew up in his face and, like, really negatively impacted himself and... The game such as Disco Night. Disco Demolition Night. But a lot of the things he did, like some of these promotions for like free tickets or cheap tickets, like teams still do that. Yeah. Red Sox, a couple years ago, the whole team was into their beards, had a beard game. It was a random afternoon, like a Wednesday afternoon, yeah. where if you showed up with the beard, you got a ticket for like five bucks. Oh, that's cool. So I mean, some of that stuff still exists for sure. Also, too, he was a pioneer in not wanting to baseball to just be like white guys. Right. You know? I mean, right. he was trying to bring in Negro League players. He was the first person to promote a woman to a high position with a club. Right. You know, so... Yeah, I mean, that stuff was, like, very good stuff that he, he did. Yeah. So, yeah. So, that's the story of Bill Veck and Disco Demolition Night. Okay. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Yips Podcast. We'll be back next week with another story from sports history. In the meantime, please make sure to check out our social channels uh, on Twitter and Instagram at the Yips Podcast and on Facebook, the Yips Podcast. And our uh, and our website, theyipspodcast.com. The Yips Podcast. We'll be pushing some updates to that. Uh, So once again, thanks for listening. Yeah, we'll see you next time.